0: ciao. It's me again, your friendly local superhero. Except for many of you, I'm not local. I'm certainly not a superhero. And some of you may even say I'm not very friendly. So really, it's just me. Ben Wartsky, the host of I Know What You're Thinking, where I answer questions that you didn't ask with new episodes coming out every Tuesday and Friday. But welcome back to yet another episode of the show that just doesn't seem to stop. Much like Grey's Anatomy or Lost, even when you think that the show should have died years ago, here comes Meredith Grey's 12th removed cousin who just got through medical school and somehow has never heard of her great aunt as she embarks on her own journey in the hospital unbeknownst to her aunt. Cue sudden dramatic realization halfway through the season that puts everything into turmoil, yada yada yada. I wanted to begin today with the story about personal growth and letting go. We go back to first grade. My teacher, Mr. Bitz, who, someone I personally enjoyed, although between you and me, his assistant, Ms. Murray, really stole the show. In Mr. Bitz's classroom, I remember everything being pretty relaxed as what does one even do in first grade? Just learn to get along? Maybe see if you're civil enough to move on to second grade, really not sure. But two things I do remember about that class are drastically different from one another. The first involves the first time that I can ever remember getting in trouble at school. I was and am still a relatively quiet person when you first get to know me. I wouldn't call myself shy by any means, but certainly reserved and I won't be all up in your face. As that reserved kid, I would rarely find myself in situations where I could get myself in trouble and would quietly scorn those who would get themselves in trouble with a teacher. How foolish could you be for trying to staple another kid's fingers together, or steal someone's sandwich because you didn't like yours? Ha! Peasants. As many of you would've had, classrooms back then had various ways for kids to keep track of how they were doing during the day. Mr. Bits's class had this form of a school of fish. At the beginning of each day, the class would all start with a fish in the sea, and if you got in trouble, you would move your fish from the sea to a net, to a bucket, and to what I probably am misremembering as a, some sort of frying pan, because there's no way it was that graphic, although I think it would be hilarious. If you were telling first graders that if they acted poorly enough that they'd be eaten, Anyways, each of those levels had different punishments involved with them, but obviously you always wanted to stay in the sea, and I did that successfully until one fateful day. Now, I'm not someone who holds grudges, but if I did, I certainly would hold it against this person, because to this day, I swear it was not my fault for getting my fish moved. It was during morning announcements, and the girl who sat next to me, whose name I do remember but will not say, turned to me and whispered something. Probably said nothing important, just like, hey, you look really cool and you're incredibly stylish. As a model citizen and a believer in listening to the morning announcements of Durant Road Elementary School, I quietly whispered back that we shouldn't talk during morning announcements. She obviously had other ideas about the importance of which classrooms had received their D.A.R.E. shirts and which Eagle sports teams were doing well, so she kept talking to me. Because this is my story, and you're only going to hear one side of it, I'll say that this happened a few times, and I was in the middle of telling her to be quiet for a third time when Mr. Bits came over, saw me talking, although I'd argue I was more so doing his job for him by maintaining class order, and he moved my fish from the sea to the net. Because this had never happened to me before, I wasn't sure how to react. So I did what every person who's been pulled over and trying to get out of their ticket would do. I started crying. Although this was not fake, I was legitimately upset by the fact that my pristine record had now been clouded. I remember this day for two reasons. One, because it was the worst day of my life, and two, because I had brought in a glass penguin to honor our class play, which was all about a penguin who was an outcast. I don't remember where I snagged the penguin from, but I do remember Miss Murray calming me down in another room while I held the glass penguin and cried. Not the best look. But what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you in a second, on this episode of I Know What You're Thinking. Before we begin, I have to come clean. I didn't come up with this question all on my own, nor is it a question that I've had debates about with my friends before. Instead, I was doing some question research one evening, aka just scrolling through TikTok as one does, when I stumbled upon a TikTok whose text had one simple question. Could you beat a penguin in a triathlon? The users who produced that question also have a podcast, so I appreciate the FRDI show. Go check them out. They have a lot of ridiculous questions, and they're just funny individuals for giving me inspiration and literally today's topic. While they answer a bunch of questions in one sitting, I try and go for more of a deep dive discussion on specific topics, which today I wanted to try and flesh out and answer the question on whether I could beat a penguin in a triathlon. First, we need to go over some ground rules and talk a little bit about what a triathlon is and how it became the event that we know today. A triathlon is a three-sports race that today consists of biking, swimming, and running. But that wasn't always the case. While there is some dispute over exactly when and where triathlons originated, there does seem to be at least incidental evidence that points to the early 20th century France as the time and place of origin. However, instead of the bike, run, swim, the French and the lettre sports, as they called it, consisted of biking, running, and canoeing. Yes, you heard me, canoeing. That was short lived and by 1974, the triathlon had migrated over to America and the canoeing had been swapped out for the now traditional bike, swim, run. Jack Johnston and Don Shanahan are the two credited for bringing triathlons to the world stage when they hosted the first triathlon in 1974 after work with 46 women and men in San Diego's Mission Bay. Today, most triathlons start with a swimming a mile, then biking 25, and finally running 6.2 miles. But the original triathlon started with a run, then a bike, then a swim, then a run in bare feet, then a swim, and then a run again. Finally, to finish off this oddity of an event, finishers had to end the race by crawling up a dirt bank. Jack Johnston said of the triathlon, quote, As I dismounted my bike and tried to run, my legs felt like they didn't belong on my body. I let out a moan of anguish and remember someone yelling to me, well, it was your idea. Honestly, I can't blame the guy. And how wild is it that he and his friend created what eventually became an Olympic sport in 2000? How incredible would it be to see something that you just made up with a friend make it into the Olympics? Unfortunately, Jack passed away in 2016 at the age of 80, but it should be noted that he came in sixth at the inaugural triathlon. Certainly no shame in that. But before the sport was added into the Olympics, it had to spread through the international community, which it did in 1982, where a triathlon was created in order to rival that of the then biggest version of the sport, Ironman Hawaii. The Nice triathlon, held in Nice, France, did create some media buzz, but not all of it was good as 7 of the 57 competitors were hospitalized after the 1500 meter swim which was held in about 57 degree waters. For every sport, there needs to be a governing body to regulate rule sets, set up events, and generate hype, buzz, new areas of revenue, and, in the case of FIFA, perhaps take people's money and become so corrupt that people don't trust the program anymore. I digress. There are two governing bodies, the ITU, the International Triathlon Union, and the WTC, the World Triathlon Corporation. While the ITU is in charge of making sure the triathlons across the globe are put on correctly and the Olympic Games run smoothly, the WTC is more concerned with the Ironman 70.3 races and the dreaded Ironman. Of course, it couldn't be any sort of organization without controversy as the ITU and WTC compete between rule sets and authority, which created a big conflict in the early 2000s. This came about mainly because the ITU asked National Triathlon Federations to refuse to sanction any WTC events. I know what you're thinking, why would they do that? Well, that may be because the WTCU is going around them and trying to undermine ITU's authority to and create its own federation. Thankfully today, the two organizations are on speaking terms and are cooperating to work together to unify rules and regulations for both of their events. There's a bunch of types of race formats that a triathlon can take, from kids of steel to the Ironman triathlon, but for the sake of this exercise, I was thinking that we could just stick to the standard Olympic variation of the .93 miles of swim, 25 miles of biking, and 6.2 miles of running. Now, let's meet our competitors. First up, we have the penguin who I'll be taking on. This flightless bird has 18 different species and lives primarily in the Southern Hemisphere, with the exception of the Galapagos penguin who lives on the equator. They range in size from the well-known Emperor Penguin, about 3 foot 7, to the dainty little blue penguin who's only 13 inches tall. As you all should know, while penguins and I have the same likelihood of taking flight, unfortunately we do not have the same underwater capabilities penguin's stiff flippers, webbed feet, and sleek shape make them expert swimmers. While swimming, a penguin hunches its head into its shoulders to maintain a streamlined shape and reduce drag. It keeps its feet pressed close to its body while using its tail to steer. Its wings are the main driver as their paddle-like flippers resemble the wing movements of flying birds just underwater. The fact that their bones are denser helps penguins remain below the surface and fight buoyancy. They don't always stay below the surface though, as some species of penguin participate in a type of swimming known as purposing, where they pop out of the water and dive back below. When porpoising, penguins can maintain a speed about 6.2 miles per hour and breathe once every minute. The Adelaide penguin can shoot out of the water nearly six feet into the air using these techniques, which allows it to A, confuse predators that are trying to chase it, and B, come ashore quickly and safely on higher, rockier outposts. Gentoo penguins can take it up a notch and swim an incredible 22 miles an hour and can dive to a depth of 600 feet while searching for food. Conversely, emperor penguins may not be able to reach the swimming speeds of a gentoo, but are the deepest diving birds known to man as they have been known to sink down to 1,800 feet while searching for food. While they may be graceful in the water though, on land these birds are much more clumsy and lethargic. I couldn't find any concrete numbers for each species, but the general consensus seems to be that the average speed of these birds waddling on land is around 2 miles an hour. Luckily they have two modes of transportation, one would be the waddle, something I am intimately familiar with, as that's how my run has been described, and the belly slide, also known as tobogganing. This action of laying on its stomach and propelling itself horizontally using its flippers and feet for propulsion, steering and braking may look cute and silly, but it does have a purpose. The top speed of tobogganing can be several times the bird's walking speed, depending on the snow conditions and the reason why the bird is sliding instead of walking. However, in order for tobogganing to be completely effective, you want more packed snow instead of freshly fallen powder. This sliding does not come without risk, as while the penguins are sliding across the ground, their coat or plumage becomes more worn and disrupted. This is bad news for our flightless friends, as their coat is the key to not only maintaining their internal body temperature of 102 degrees Fahrenheit, but if they are to lose their entire coat, then they can't swim or fish. This actually happens to penguins once a year. It's called a catastrophic molt, which actually is the term, that's the scientific term for it, where penguins will lose all of their feathers at once. Because as I said earlier, they wouldn't be able to swim or fish without those feathers. They fatten themselves up beforehand to try and survive the two and three weeks it takes before their feathers grow back. Think hot girl summer, but instead of trying to look good in a bathing suit for Instagram, you're trying to fatten up to survive. Now, just for a few fun facts and a callback, two episodes ago I talked about going on a sewer tour in France. Now, I didn't want the poop talk to end there, so did you know that scientists actually track penguin populations and movements based on their poop from satellite imagery? I know what you're thinking, gross, but it's true. Young penguin chicks have a darker colored feces with the colors called guano, so scientists were able to write algorithms that would help them track the color of guano versus the usual white arctic snow. In 2014, scientists led by Peter Fretwell were the first to estimate the global population of emperor penguins from space. They actually discovered that there were twice as many colonies of emperor penguins in Antarctica than had previously been estimated. They actually hope to further this research and use it to track other species of animals that are in remote places. Speaking of remote places, and no, I'm still not talking about an Arby's drive through There is a crazy story about a penguin in 2011 who got lost on a fishing expedition and ended up in New Zealand, which is about 2,000 miles in the wrong direction. This was the first time in nearly 44 years that an emperor penguin had been spotted in New Zealand. Named after the 2006 film Happy Feet, Happy Feet needed to be hospitalized and have its stomach pumped because it was so confused that it ate sand and mistook it for snow, which penguins do normally eat in order to hydrate themselves, as well as some driftwood it may have picked up along the way. The next question was, what to do with the creature? They could drop him right off in Antarctica, but an advisory group decided it may be best to just drop it in the Southern Ocean and will be expected to find its way home. Safe travels, Happy Feet. I hope you made it. So I've given you the Penguins background. Now, let me provide you with a background on myself. I did briefly, and I can't emphasize the briefly part enough, run track. But because I was tricked into running the two-mile event, and by tricked, I mean coach told me to run the two-mile event, I didn't know it was the last meet of the event, which means that everybody's already done with all their events, they look at you, and in my case, if you're the slowest person on the track team, everybody gets to watch you suffer for 15 minutes or however long it takes to get through it. With that being said, regardless of how slow I may be, I know I'm out running a bumbling penguin. My experience in the water basically stops after I learned the basic strokes, but even if I was traveling at the speed of Michael Phelps, who can swim at around 4.5 miles an hour at a sprint, I'm still not touching those cute little balls of fuzz. I will go for a conservative estimate and say that I would swim the mile in around 45 minutes. But this isn't just about penguins or triathlons, this is about competition. This is a battle between me and the penguin species three legs to the race, swimming, biking, and running. I know what you're thinking. Obviously penguins can't bike. Don't be ridiculous. So what if we gave them a leg up, so to speak, and forced both them and I to toboggan for that distance? I'm not sure how long penguins normally toboggan for, but 25 miles seems like a long distance. Let the better man win. As I said before, I will give myself 45 minutes to do this part, and this is really the penguins' biggest time because doing some quick math, I'm going to give the penguins 9 minutes and 40 seconds to complete the .93 mile swim, just because I don't know if I could spur the penguins into its 22 mile an hour sprint without increasing the danger levels significantly. Obviously, the swimming portion would also have to be done in some warmer water, as oftentimes the penguins will be swimming in water that is simply 22 degrees Fahrenheit, or maybe we have two separate areas where we swim. That can be ironed out later. Then onto the belly sliding section, or tobogganing, where I really don't have any solid numbers here. I'm just going to do some uh, guesstimation, which as I've also talked about I'm horrible at, but I think the penguin may or may not have the mental fortitude to slide along their belly for 25 miles, but for my sake I'm not sure if I could either. I picture myself in some sort of wetsuit getup and the track being sloped gently downhill, but I have to make up some time here if I'm supposed to have any sort of shot at beating these guys. For the penguin, I'm going to double their walking speed to give them 4.4 miles per hour, which knocks out the sliding portion in about 5 hours, 37 minutes, 30 seconds, while for myself I think I'd have to be slower just for the lack of feathers, because I'm imaging I have some sort of rig that allows me not to sink into the snow, so I'll give myself a speed of 3.8 miles per hour, which would put me in at 6 hours, 27 minutes, and 30 seconds. Now we get to the final leg of the race, and the basket where i'm putting all of my eggs into which is the 6.2 mile run the penguin running at 2.2 miles an hour comes in at 2 hours 44 minutes and 18 seconds well i think that i could come in at a smooth 58 minutes 54 seconds the final tally penguins 8 hours 31 minutes 28 seconds ben 8 hours 11 minutes 24 seconds smoked them wasn't even close Well, it was. I mean, I can only imagine how much slower I would run after six and a half hours of sliding along my stomach, but I think knowing that if I didn't do this and I'd be the man who lost to a penguin in a triathlon, I'd have to power through. And who knows what the penguin is thinking. For the sake of this argument, they obviously know they're in some sort of competition and they understand the rules that they have to abide by. For reference, I think the fastest triathlon officially documented was completed in one hour, 39 minutes, and 50 seconds, which is insane to think that a penguin and I would only be seven hours behind that. We're nearly there. Anyways, let's go check out our reviews because I'm sure they are pouring in. Ah, I see. We've received one more rating. Woo! But still no reviews. So if you would like to see yourself featured on a future episode, open up your Apple podcast app and leave a rating and a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. And as always, if there's anything that you disagree with me about, or if you think that there's another animal that I could try and compete in an Olympic sport with, let me know. You know where to find me. At the Benzone on all social media thank you for listening to this week's episode of I Know What You're Thinking. I'm Ben Wartski, and I'll talk to you next time.